All right, we're going to get started. Uh, I want to start by welcoming you all to the Cato Institute. My name is Chip Bishop. I, uh, I work with student programs here at the Cato Institute. Uh, welcome. Um, this is the DC Forum for Freedom. Uh, we're pleased to welcome Ian Vasquez to speak with us today. Uh, just a quick word on students, uh, student programs here at Cato. Uh, we run a lot of different programs trying to get resources available to students like you uh, and like all the people that are viewing this event online right now. Uh, we have a website, catooncampus.com. Um, so you can go to that, uh, or you can click on the four students link at the top of the Cato page. We run various uh, contests. We have an essay contest, we have an op-ed contest, and we have a YouTube contest. Um, we also have an internship program, um, and the deadline for that, I believe, is Monday. So if you didn't know that, you can scramble home and still have some time over the weekend to complete that. Um, but yeah, welcome welcome to Cato again. Uh, afterwards, we're going to be having a reception up in the Winter Garden, so I hope you'll... Uh, bear through this uh, wonderful presentation and then join us upstairs for refreshments. Uh, I'm going to bring Dennis Craig up right now. He, uh, he works at the DC Forum for Freedom and he's going to introduce our speaker. Hello everybody. As Chip said, thank you very much for, uh, for being here. First, I wanted to for, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Dennis Craig. Um, you know, I help out the D.C. Forum for Freedom. I run the uh, Liberty Society at the George Washington University. What the D.C. Forum for Freedom is, is basically a network of students all over the D.C., North Virginia area. It, it serves as, you know, a networking group, a hub, a communication hub for all the different liberty groups in the area to get together, attend each other's events, support one another, and to stay in the loop as to what's going on with everybody. So we have a lot of groups, you know, George Mason's, uh, George Mason's groups, American University is here, uh, my group, George Washington, and I'm, and I'm sure a few others that I'm leaving out, but uh, it's just, it's been extremely successful, and we've been doing these things once a month just to get students together and to, uh, to keep that communication intact. Um, before I introduce our speaker, I just want to uh, take note of some books that are for sale outside in the lobby, um, including this book, Global Fortune, The Stumble and Rise of World Capitalism. This is a variety, this was a book edited by uh, Mr. Vasquez. It's a variety of articles that he's compiled that touch on um, just the international, international economics and um, how capitalism has affected the uh, the rest of the world in, in many different instances and in cases. Um, this is seven bucks. Awesome deal. I'm going to grab one. There's other books. Uh, Bose's Libertarianism of Primer and um, The Libertarian Reader. And they also have um, the Economic Index of Freedom. I'm not saying that right, but uh, it's out there and it's great for students if you're doing research on you know anything it weighs economic opportunity and economic freedom and how prosperous those countries are but with that being said um, Ian Vasquez is the director of the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity he is a member of the Mount uh, Pillarin Society and has been a team member of the Council on Foreign Relations Prior to joining the Cato Institute in 1992, Mr. Vosk has worked on inter-American issues with the Center for Strategic and International Studies and Caribbean and Latin American Action. His articles have appeared in a variety of publications, including the Washington Times, the Financial Times, um, Mexico's El Economisto, Chile's uh, El Mercurio, and 
many, many, many more. He's appeared on CNBC, NBC, C-SPAN, um, Univision, Telemundo. Um, you know, I could continue to go on and on. Very impressive. He received his bachelor's degree from Northwestern University and his master's degree from the School of Advanced International Studies at uh, John Hopkins University. So with that being said, um, I'd like to thank Cato for for helping us put to, put this together and uh, helping the student movement for liberty. So let's welcome our speaker. Thank you. Thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Cato Institute. Chip already said that this was going to be a wonderful talk. In case he's wrong and some of you uh, decide to get up and leave, please do so quietly so that you don't wake everybody else up on your way out. Uh, maybe I'll start by asking uh, people here. How many people here are actually from Latin America? Okay, that's good. And how many people here have visited Latin America? Other than the Latin Americans, of course. Okay, that's good. Well, the reason that I ask is, is actually because, maybe not, not in this crowd, but certainly in, in other crowds, the picture of Latin America that is formed in the United States and in Europe is often a distortion of reality. Latin America tends to be a place where, where Americans and Europeans uh, actually for a long time have projected their uh, fantasies and their ideological goals without very much in the way of, of accountability. And uh, it's also been a place where outsiders, again, especially Europeans and, and Americans, certain ones, not everybody, uh, express their discontent with their own uh, societies. And so what results is, is a distortion of what I think is, is Latin American reality. And, uh, and so you see in the, in the mainstream press and even in popular perception oftentimes uh, this distortion. I would give as one example uh, what's going on in Bolivia today. Here you have uh, the rise of an indigenous leader who represents a, a big portion of, of the population in a democratically elected way, at least initially. And that's all well and good. Uh, but, of course, the problem is that that government is imposing an increasingly authoritarian uh, style of, of government based on uh, collective-type rights that actually violate uh, individual rights. Now, this version of what's going on in Bolivia is hard to find in the popular press because critics of the current government are often depicted as elitist or the white minority, when the reality is that at least half of the country is vehemently opposed to that uh, government. So that's just one example. Now this uh, distortion of reality has been going on for quite a long time, since the very beginning, in fact, when the Europeans came to Latin America. And it's something that the Venezuelan uh, intellectual, Carlos Rangel, uh, described as the myth of the noble savage, where the Europeans arrived and, and they viewed the, the people, the natives who already lived in the Americas, as a very idealistic type, very peaceful uh, people who lived in harmony with each other and with nature. Of course, that was not true. Uh, at all, uh, certainly not with the main uh, uh, civilizations of the Incas, the Mayas, who had already expired by then, and the Aztecs, who were very violent authoritarian uh, civilizations. Certainly 
uh, a lot of injustice happened when the Europeans arrived, but that depiction of the, the, the noble savage is a myth. And uh, it has evolved in recent times into, uh, into a sort of um, support for what, what Granger uh, used to call the good revolutionary. So if it wasn't true 500 years ago, it's even less true today in Latin America where uh, people have intermixed throughout those centuries and, and where entire uh, indigenous populations, especially in the Caribbean, including in Venezuela, were wiped out. So that, that depiction wasn't true then. It's even less true today, and yet you have that myth evolve into uh, support for the good revolutionary, which is another way of saying support for far leftist uh, causes in the region that supposedly vindicate the noble savage in support of the genuinely good, untainted uh, Latin American, the genuine Latin American. And of course, the best example uh, of this in Latin America is the case of, of Cuba, where you have a dictatorship that nevertheless is so oftentimes in the press by Western celebrities and others uh, celebrated at worst or its abuses downplayed significantly because of the supposed triumphs of the revolution, bringing down inequality and helping the poor. That in itself is a big distortion of reality. The other country which uh, is taking the place of Cuba is Venezuela. And uh, uh, actually just this week there was uh, the death of of a political prisoner in Cuba, uh, Orlando Zapata Tamayo, who uh, died in the most brutal way. He, he was a political prisoner, peaceful opponent of the regime, and he went on a hunger strike. They, uh, they decided not to give him water for 18 days. That resulted in kidney failure, after which uh, the, the prison authorities put him under harsh air conditioning uh, naked. Uh, for a long time until he contracted uh, pneumonia and eventually died. He died this week, and uh, I mention it just because there are constant reminders of the reality, uh, in this case of, of Cuba, of Latin America, and yet it doesn't seem uh, to change the perception among some, uh, some people outside of, of Latin America. Uh, I'll get into it a little bit later, but I think that that's finally starting to change uh, somewhat. I was mentioning Venezuela. Venezuela is the country that is taking over uh, the place of, uh, of Cuba in terms of uh, uh, the violation of, uh, of rights. Just this week, the Inter-American uh, Commission for Human Rights issued a 300-page report detailing what we already know about uh, Venezuela, how uh, uh, criminal law administrative law and just abuses of power have been used to uh, marginalize anybody who disagrees with the government, and sometimes in very violent ways, uh, but consistently in ways that violate uh, those people's rights, even under the Constitution of, of Venezuela. So you have uh, all, all these cases continuously coming up to sort of confirm a reality that is oftentimes uh, distorted by the time it gets to, to the United States. Now, of course, I've mentioned the most e extreme cases, but I mention them because they are uh, references 
in a uh, in a ideological battle that is going on in Latin America today between those who are advocating and wanting to impose populist forms of government to various degrees, and those Latin Americans who have a different vision of Latin America, who have a vision, uh, who want to have a Latin America that is modern, uh, based on broadly liberal democracy, market democracy. And so it's in that context, this ongoing battle throughout the region, that uh, the Cato Institute does its work uh, with a lot of individuals down there and a lot of different groups. But before I mention a little bit of, uh, of the kind of work that's being done to promote liberty there, uh, I thought it would be worthwhile to ask uh, very quickly, how is it that Latin America got to this point? And uh, the history is important, especially the sequence of events is important to help explain why it is that Latin America, unlike some other regions, say Central uh, Europe, uh, has had a difficult time implementing political and economic liberalization at the same time. It was in the early 1980s that the region had moved away from authoritarianism and started its transition uh, to democracy. Unfortunately, that early democracy uh, was a regime accompanied by terrible economic policies. There was a third world debt crisis as a result, which of course was really a Latin American uh, debt crisis, uh, which was the result of, of years of bad policy that had accumulated into debt rather than development, which turned out to, to be unpayable. And the initial response to that debt crisis was more bad economic policy with uh, the support of uh, the International Monetary Fund, so that the 1980s for Latin America represented a real uh, lost decade. That's what it was known. I think that's a very accurate depiction of what happened there. The, uh, the move away from authoritarianism in the 80s then was really a move toward illiberal democracy. And it wasn't until the late 80s and early 90s that all sorts of uh, countries began to implement far-reaching and meaningful market reforms. Uh, but they were, but they were imp introduced because no alternative was left. Everything else had been tried. Uh, the, the economies and the political systems of the region were, were exhausted. And so you saw a very strange phenomenon. You saw uh, left-of-center governance, governments from the PRI in Mexico to the Peronist Party of Menem in Argentina to President Fujimori in Peru, who campaigned against uh, any sudden uh, reforms, introduce quite radical uh, and fast uh, reforms. And the entire region saw uh, pretty deep reforms, especially in three areas, privatization, uh, the liberalization of trade and of investment, and uh, an increase in uh, monetary stability. In other words, much, much better monetary policy. The region went from hyperinflation in many countries to sound currency. Uh, thankfully, that's generally been maintained 
uh, with a few exceptions in the region uh, since then. Now, uh, what was the result of this? The result initially was high growth and uh, a pretty high level of popularity of these leaders to the point that they got reelected or their parties got reelected on this uh, broadly market liberal platform. But again, these are leaders who were never uh, led by conviction of uh, liberal ideals. They just uh, implemented these uh, ideas out of necessity. And so what happened in the 1990s in Latin America was a diminishing returns from the early reforms that were made. They were not accompanied by further and uh, consistent, coherent set uh, of reforms. You saw, as a result, a decrease in growth as the decade wore on, and quite unfortunately, these good policies in so many cases were accompanied by terrible uh, policies, including terrible macroeconomic policies that resulted in crises in Mexico, in Brazil, in Argentina. What were they doing? They were manipulating the exchange rate. They were mismanaging the debt terribly. Uh, they started to engage in bad monetary policy in some cases that coincided with the election cycles. These are exactly the types of, uh, of problems that have plagued Latin America since the time of independence. So, uh, so you have a region that in the 1990s, at the end of the decade and at the beginning of this past decade, had a low growth rate despite the reforms that were introduced. In fact, Latin America uh, didn't go all the way down the road of economic freedom. It went only partially down the road of economic freedom. And yet, the perception in the region by the second half of the 90s was that, well, we tried capitalism, and it hasn't worked out very well. And in many cases, it looks like it's been a spectacular failure. This, of course, is, is very far from the reality. Uh, but it opened the doors to all sorts of opportunistic uh, politicians and uh, interest groups. Uh, and thus, we have a region in the past 10 years that is highly divided among uh, the populists who have risen during this time and uh, those who want to continue down a path of, of uh, modern democratic capitalism. And that brings us, uh, that brings us to, to today. Uh, if you look at a map of Latin America, you'll see just how divided it is. I mean, most of the countries, with a couple of exceptions, on the Pacific, Chile, Peru, Colombia, most of Central America, and Mexico, are countries that have opted for democratic capitalism, have free trade agreements with the United States, or would like to have uh, free trade agreements with the United States, and for the most part look set to sort of continue along those lines and, and not follow the populist path, which has been chosen by Venezuela, Bolivia, uh, to some degree Argentina, uh, certainly Nicaragua, unfortunately also uh, Ecuador, and uh, there you have Brazil, which is always an undefined uh, category. We never, there's a couple of Brazilians here who understand that no, no one ever can classify Brazil. Uh, and so the region is divided geographically, but it's also very divided internally 
in most countries. Venezuela is a country that's very divided uh, among supporters of the government and opposition. Uh, Bolivia is a country that is extremely divided, especially along geographic lines. Ecuador is a country that's very divided. Those are the populist countries. But even the ones that are cho choosing the other direction are very divided. Mexico uh, is divided. Peru is divided, with the interior uh, being more susceptible to voting for populist candidates. Mexico, uh, the, the current president of Mexico got his support from most of the the voters in the northern part of the country and the south tended to be more more popular. So you see this pattern in Latin America uh, today. Uh, so here we are then in the middle of this huge uh, ideological ba battle that is just dividing the, the entire region. And what you mostly hear uh, from the region is the spread of populism, the threat of Hugo Chavez, uh, the unstoppable uh, force uh, of populism and its money and how that's winning over all sorts of converts in a region that's very unequal, and so uh, this has broad appeal. Um, I, I actually think that that may have been true of several years ago, but is less and less true, and, and perhaps the opposite is the truth today. And I think that uh, there's a lot of signs that... Uh, the liberal side, in the classical sense of the term, democratic uh, capitalism, is uh, having success in the region, and actually success of very important kinds. I'm just going to mention three, three phenomena. There's more things to, that we could talk about, but I think three that stand out, uh, which are very hopeful to those of us who uh, advocate liberty in the region. And one of them is that there are more and more success stories in Latin America. There are more and more democratic, market, democ market democratic success stories in the region. Of course, the one that stands out uh, the most, Chile, is the one that has had the freest economy in Latin America for the longest time, and thus has had the most success in uh, almost any measure of economic, social, and political uh, progress. It stands apart from the rest of Latin America. We do an exercise at the Cato Institute with, with the Fraser Institute in Canada and think tanks around the world, which is that we put together this economic freedom of the world report that measures the level of economic freedom in countries. And in 1975, Chile was a country that had uh, one of the lowest levels of economic freedom in the world. I think there were two or three other countries that ranked lower out of the ones that we could rank in that date. And today, it ranks on our index as the fifth freest economy in the world. That's a tremendous amount of progress on policy change, but it also uh, uh, represents, because of the strong relationship between freedom and other indicators, tremendous amount of, of progress on all sorts of social indicators. If Chile continues to, to grow at decent levels, say 5% or so, I would say that in the next uh, 15 years, it will become a developed country. Now, this is a tremendous success story. And I'll take it a step further. It's a, it's a tremendous success story for another reason. Chile was a pioneer in economic reforms in the world, not just in Latin America. Its reforms began in 1975. This is before China started reforms. This is before 
Margaret Thatcher started any talk or any implementation of, of privatization, Chile was already doing so. And its reforms were done explicitly to turn the country into a capitalist society uh, with a well-thought-out plan of all sorts of far-reaching reforms that complemented each other and that was really a coherent uh, plan. Remember, nobody had done privatizations before. This is something completely new. Uh, Chile started down that path, and it did reforms a whole s series of, uh, of areas. It also uh, it was very uh, uh, dynamic in the way that it did uh, reforms, and it introduced um, <coughs> uh, one reform which uh, was really a paradigm changer, uh, which was, of course, the privatization of the pension system. This is the kind of reform that uh, is being copied all around the world, and it is one of these policies that sooner or later, I have no doubt about it, will be implemented in, in uh, the developed world as well. So it's, it's an idea that is exportable from Latin America to the United States, and usually it's rare to hear uh, public policy ideas that are good, that are coming out of, uh, of Latin America and that can be useful in the rich world, but that's certainly one of them. Uh, let, me, uh, let me just mention a couple of other uh, cases that I think are success stories in, in Latin America, which are uh, showing that this is not just Chile that where, where economic freedom works. Uh, El Salvador is a, increasingly successful at uh, at economic uh, freedom and democracy. It's probably the country that has done the most um, in the past 10 or 15 years in terms of, of uh, economic reforms after Chile uh, to, to uh, increase its level of freedom. And it's done so in a whole range of areas. It's really, in essence, copied Chile in many ways. Uh, and if you look at the results, you see a similar pattern as in Chile, huge drop in poverty and, and so on. But if you look at the growth rate, it's not very impressive. And so we did a study at the Cato Institute of, of El Salvador, and we discovered that, in fact, they've been measuring, the government's been measuring economic growth uh, incorrectly in El Salvador. Uh, they... The entire economy has been transformed in, in that country. It's a service economy. It's no longer based on agriculture as much as before and so on and so forth. And yet the government had been measuring it as though everybody was living on a farm. So we've discovered that the, the, the size of the economy is probably 30 or 35 percent greater than it actually is. And that uh, is consistent with some of the measures that the World Bank and the IMF have discovered and well, probably in a year or two, the, the, the government will change its, its official statistics to reflect that. But the, the reason that I mention this, it's important because it's just yet another confirmation about the strong relationship between economic freedom and growth. And so that's an important case study. I think that Peru is uh, another very impressive success story in the region. Here's a country that uh, was one of... Uh, the country's in the worst shape in the 1980s. And uh, because of its, its pretty radical reforms that it's been able to maintain, it has now transformed its economy as well. 
and uh, we can talk about that. But what makes Peru different is that it had a, a lot of things that made it different. First of all, at the beginning of the reforms, they did some of the most radical reforms in the region in the fastest period of time. And then after that, they didn't commit any serious mistakes, which was the case in much of the rest of the region. In fact, uh, during part of that time, especially in uh, the beginning of this decade after Fujimori left, uh, there was a president, Toledo, who was very unpopular, which is a pretty good deal for a Latin American country because he wasn't able to do anything. And he had a good finance minister who understood that things have to be kept stable, and that goes a long way in Latin America. Just don't screw things up is a good policy in Latin America. And that has helped to transform uh, Peru into a country that is exporting tens of millions of dollars of software now has completely transformed the entire coast of, uh, of the country into an agricultural belt for the first time in history, has integrated itself with mo much of the rest of the world and the rest of the country, and, and on and on. Anyway, I mention this because for Latin Americans, it's important to know that it's not, that it's not just Chileans. Everybody in Latin America, are there any Chileans here? Good. Everybody in Latin America looks at the Chileans and, and, and sort of explains away their success, or there's a tendency to do so, well, they're Chileans, as though that is what made the difference. In fact, it's the policies and institutions that, that, that make a difference. And that's why it's important to point to these changes. Uh, let me mention a couple of other things that I think are important phenomena in the region. One is the growth of the middle class. Hardly anyone ever mentions this, and I think it may be the most important thing going on in the region today, and that is the steady, evident, very visible growth of the middle class that um, is changing politics, and it's, it's helping to transform uh, cultural values that prevail in society. For the first time in much of the region, Latin Americans have finally had stability for a long enough period of time that they can plan their businesses into the future, take loans out that, for their houses. You know, mortgages didn't used to exist in Latin America for houses because the currency was so unreliable you simply couldn't plan in the future. Uh, now, now they do people starting their own families and uh, actually financing their own houses based on credit and so on. It's this growth of the middle class that for the first time is enjoying being able to go out shopping at, at nice stores or decent stores and getting appliances that they never thought they could get before and so on, that actually see progress for themselves and can see that in the future things will be better for them and their families that uh, is sort of insulating some countries, to some extent, from populism. And I think that, uh, especially in the last elections in Mexico and in Peru, it was this, this steady growth, slow but steady growth of the middle class, that was really responsible for the populace, who also had a good group of uh, supporters, from getting into power. And so um, I think that that's something that we're going to see a lot, uh, a lot more evidence of in the coming decade. And, uh, of course, the growth of the middle class doesn't guarantee uh, a constituency that uh, favors uh, liberty all the time. But generally speaking, uh, middle classes tend to be in support of sort of uh, 
the, the group of values and virtues that are consistent with an open society. The last thing that I want to mention is um, what I think is an absolutely new phenomenon in the region, and that is uh, this, uh, this widespread feeling among young people in Latin America that they have had it with the status quo and that they're also rejecting the far-left ideas and are actually wanting to live in a modern Latin America, one where there's tolerance, where there's a good degree of, uh, of the market, and there is uh, democracy. In other words, market democracy. And, of course, the best example of, uh, of young people mobilizing in favor of these values is the student movement in Venezuela. But actually, this kind of, of feeling is present throughout the region, and it's the first time that I've ever seen this in the region. I think maybe it's the first time this has happened, uh, because usually when, when students uh, protest or organize or get together collectively to promote something in Latin America, it's usually the idealistic leftist causes and so on. Of course, that still happens in some universities and so on, but what you're seeing is a whole group of young people in, in most countries uh, wanting to promote a completely different view. And so um, it's, it's because of that that uh, at the Cato Institute in the past several years, um, uh, we've decided to, do, uh, to, to reach out to some of these students and to work with them, uh, to engage them in uh, policy discussions and in, in the ideas of, of liberty, and we've done it in a lot of different ways. One of the ways that, that we've done is work with some of the, our Venezuelan friends uh, in Venezuela and in Latin America. We took the, some of the leaders of the student movement in Venezuela right after they had defeated Chavez in the, the big referendum a couple of years ago that rejected his socialist constitution. Um, we took them to Bolivia. We took them to Ecuador. We took them to Argentina. And, uh, you know, they were greeted as heroes in, the, in those countries in big meetings with other students and so on. And uh, they got a, a lot of, of press. They were spokespersons for that other Latin America. Uh, and uh, it's not easy to do that kind of work uh, in some countries in Latin America today. I'm talking, of course, about the populist countries. In each place, uh, we were... Uh, uh, harassed by the authorities. Uh, at one point in Bolivia, they th they took our passports away and then they threatened to kick us out of the country. But anyway, we got around that. Uh, in Bolivia, they filmed us and they were following us, as well as in Ecuador. We were also in uh, in uh, Venezuela, and I'll talk about that in a minute. We were there last year uh, with uh, a number of the students and the the, the young people. Because one of the things that we began doing at Cato was also um, a seminar, a Cato University in Spanish in Latin America for, for Latin American leaders that we're doing annually now. And we do it in, in Guatemala uh, for a week with the best uh, libertarian minds from, from the region. And we pick who we think are really uh, outstanding individuals. Well, we're, we've, we did it again this year. 
But last year, uh, there was such a demand from Venezuelans that they decided we should do it in Venezuela. Why not? And so we did that, uh, sort of an abbreviated version of that. And that was a totally different experience than in Guatemala because the uh, government was not pleased that we were there. So they showed up with the National Guard and the state-run television and the Ministry of Education to tell us that we had to shut down, which was really kind of an exciting moment. And, uh, well, anyway, uh, we were... In Venezuela, the way you protect your rights these days is you call the only, uh, the only free television station and you report what's going on. And so that's what, one of the things that we did. And they started reporting it immediately. And then it became international news. Well, the National Guard was trying to shut us down. And after some tense couple of hours, they finally left. And uh, for the rest of the week, we were on every... Uh, government television station all night long with uh, with uh, whatever the propaganda that said that we were here to to uh, undermine Venezuelan society and so on and so forth. It was really good advertising for us, <laughs> and it gives you actually it gives you an impression of uh, how that authoritarianism is going. It's clearly a Latin American authoritarianism. It's not a German dictatorship or anything Russian. Uh, I mean, it's pretty disorganized, frankly. I got the impression that it was, a, that it was the bureaucrats in charge of showing that they're going to be tough on the, the libertarians from the Cato Institute. And, you know, it, actually it made Chavez look like a fool because one of the guests that I had invited, Álvaro Vargas Llosa, which some of you may know, is a well-known intellectual. They stopped him at the airport and were harassing him, uh, but they forgot to take his cell phone away. So uh, I, we're waiting for him to come to our event to speak, and suddenly the same television station that everybody calls to defend their, their rights is interviewing him live on television and he's reporting from the office where he's being held uh, how he's being harassed and that the bureaucrat forgot to take the telephone away <laughs> and so finally they came in they took the telephone away but then they forgot to shut off the telephone so you could hear them talking and then finally that was uh, that was shut off and then finally because that became instant international news as well they had to let him go on the condition that he didn't talk about about politics, which of course he didn't agree to, but they let him go. And anyway, so that's the, the, the kind of thing that's going on there, but it can get very nasty as that uh, Human Rights uh, Commission uh, documented this week in many instances. So th those are just some of the things that we're doing in, in Latin America with respect to young people. But, of course, a big part of the work that we do at the Cato Institute, the major work that we do is actually policy work. Research on public policies, whether it's on uh, the informal economy or on what to do about education in, in Latin America or the crisis in water or just general matters. And so we have had numerous conferences that are policy conferences, not not aimed at students or young people. And so the work that we do there is a combination of outreach to, to young people, because there really is this tremendous thirst for these ideas now in Latin America among young people, and uh, the, the scholarly work we do on, on public policy. Uh, and I'm pleased to report that in addition to these student gr groups proliferating throughout the region, uh, there are also uh, so many good public policy groups, think tanks, uh, doing great work in the region, and we work uh, with them. 
there's a number of things that are going on that I think are still uh, uh, favor the pro-liberty side, not the least of which is that Fidel Castro is going to die. Well, Cubans don't actually believe that. They say he will never die because he's just, he's been around. I mean, if you've been to Cuba and you say that, they, they'll say, no, he's never going to die. And, but I think that he's going to die. And uh, if I had to bet that he was going to die, I would bet he's going to die this year. But, of course, I've been saying that for the past several years, so maybe the Cubans are right. But, it, but it, anyway, uh, <clears throat> the, mo- the moment he dies, in my view, is going to be a, a signal for collective action in, in Cuba to start changing things under Raul Castro. Because absolutely nobody is a communist in, in Cuba, with the exception of maybe two people. And, and everybody is fed up with that system. But... They can't change it because that truly is a totalitarian system. And I actually, I think to be a successful totalitarian system in, in Latin America, as opposed to a Latin American authoritarianism, which is disorganized and so on, you have to basically run an island dictatorship and just close everybody in. And that's, that's one of the keys to, to Castro's success. But he's going to die. And people are so fed up, including people in the Communist Party, the military, and so on, they're going to start pushing for change. I think it's not going to be real radical, but once that system starts changing, uh, that's not going to be, that's going to be unstoppable. So nobody knows, even the most informed person doesn't know how things are going to evolve there. But I think that it'll probably be more along the China model of economic change, which, um, you know, It'll be far better than what exists today. And as that happens, we're going to see all sorts of ugly truths come out. And uh, I hope it's not Fidel calling me. Uh, And we're going to see all sorts of ugly truths come out. And I think that that'll have such a positive effect on the climate of liberty throughout the region because, after all, uh, Cuba is explicitly the model that Venezuela, with all of its money and financing throughout the region to prop up the other populist uh, regimes, uh, cites. And uh, that added to the total economic incompetence of the Venezuelan regime, which, of course, is now facing all sorts of economic uh, problems, um, is only going to bolster the side of those countries that have also been growing, because remember, in the last 10 years, there's been high growth in the entire region, including the populist countries. But uh, it's been due to different factors, and not the least of which is high world growth, which has lifted all boats. The populist countries, of course, are not based on uh, a model of wealth creation, and so they are going to run into economic difficulties. And I think that the to the extent that that becomes clear, uh, the, the pro-liberty side is going to come out on top. And sometimes uh, those of us who, who are in this battle, and, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a major player in this battle. There are real uh, admirable people in Cuba, like the, the, the bloggers that are doing so much work in Venezuela, including people in prisons, in Ecuador, including businessmen who... Who's, properties have been taken away and so on. There's people who are really admirable. Um, the, the thing to keep in mind is that you have to think in the medium to the long term because 
most of the time, these regimes run into trouble that they can't handle. Again, Cuba has been the exception, but those days are, are numbered uh, as well. So that's something to, to keep in mind for everybody who works in promoting liberty in the region. So uh, I, I guess my main message is one of optimism and uh, one that calls for being ready to take the opportunity for when uh, those moments uh, change in certain populist countries and even in other countries to, to do the right thing. Thanks very much. Question in the back. Yeah, right there. Thank you. Um, uh, question about Chile. Um, I, it's something I, that I've often argued with um, because it is uh, the most free now, but how it got started with the whole revolution in Pinochet and all that uh, is something uh, that is often very controversial um, uh, amongst our side of things. Um, I, so I was curious on your take on that situation. Yeah, I mean, the key to the, the, key to the uh, success of, of Chile was certainly not authoritarian uh, government. It was the unlikely increase in liberty under a military government. And let us remember, this was not the case of a military government that overthrew a democratic regime. Uh, at least, I don't believe that, that, that the facts say that. Uh, the Allende government had clearly, uh, and long before, crossed the line into authoritarianism. And it had repeatedly violated the Constitution. The Supreme Court had repeatedly said, sir, you are violating the Constitution. You can't do all these things. The Congress said, sir, you can't do all these things. And yet he continued to do it, explicitly saying that what he wanted to do was impose whatever, this model. Okay, you might agree, you might disagree, but, but he was violating all of the, the constitutional order to such a point that the, that the Congress actually uh, voted f uh, to have the military intervene, and, and this was a public vote with the full support of the Congress. This is a very unusual situation. Um, so uh, this is not to justify a uh, 17 years of military government, but let's be clear about what it was not. Uh, so what you saw was a short civil war um, in which a couple of thousand people uh, died and abuses and uh, curtailment of civil liberties. But what we've seen around the world, and certainly what's happened in, in Chile, is that countries that start increasing their economic freedom suddenly start increasing all their other freedoms civil liberties and uh, democratic, uh, uh, well, political li liberty as well. And so that was certainly the case in, in Chile. And I know that the, not the military leaders, but the technocrats who um, were guiding, trying to convince the government to do things, and it wasn't, the, frankly, it wasn't the, an easy thing. There were times when when the military government decided to do exactly the opposite, and well, just like politics, uh, that that uh, that this was not a, a, a clear-cut process, but that all of them explicitly were aiming for a transition to democracy. So, uh, the case of Chile is very unique. Most 
most authoritarian regimes uh, actually go in the other direction and reduce freedom. And uh, um, one thing that can be said from that whole experience and from really uh, all the, the, the big reforms that have been done in the most successful countries in the world is that a lot uh, depends on luck, on chance. Uh, that is to say that you have to have the right, do the right things at the right time, but it is largely a matter of luck that that opportunity uh, will come up. And Chile is a perfect example of that because when the exchange of Chicago University st students and Chilean students began in the 1950s, absolutely nobody knew what it was really going to turn into, which is one of the most impressive economic success stories in, in the world. Yes? Hey, um, I'd like you to comment on the uh, recent situation in Honduras um, based on, I guess you could call it a uh, constitutional crisis, and I'd, I'd really like your opinion on why the world was so against the Honduran government, given that they followed their constitution. We may consider their constitution a little defective in that they didn't have a formal impeachment proceeding, but and the fact that the military, you know, basically came in and uh, removed this guy. But this was all according to their constitution, and yet the United States and the rest of the world acted like, uh, you know, this was a military coup. And why were they so, why were we so against it? And what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. What, what happened in, in Honduras was really a very unlikely, successful defense of the institutions of, uh, of democracy against authoritarianism, consistent with their own constitution. And uh, this was very unlikely because we've already seen in the past 10 years how democratically elected governments in the region have taken advantage of uh, their power to proceed to violate the Constitution in, in numerous ways and uh, become ever more authoritarian, always claiming that they are democratic. Um, and nobody has said anything, and nobody seems to be able to stop them and so on. Well, I think that Honduras was a case where people had already seen the way that this movie was... was they already seen this movie before, and uh, it was clear that, that the Constitution was being violated, and both the Congress and the Supreme Court uh, was able to uh, have a, a say, according to the Constitution, on what had happened in a way that legitimized the removal of Celaya, so that in the eyes of, of Hondurans, well, not the supporters of Celaya, but the majority of Hondurans, and certainly in the eyes of the legal institutions, this was certainly legitimate, except for taking him out of the country. But that's a separate issue. Now, uh, I, th I, mean, I think that this is a case where people's perception of Latin America is so different than what is actually happening. And one of the reasons is because immediately upon this uh, occurring, the OAS, the Organization of American States, condemned it. But of course the Organization of American States is uh, influenced uh, 
by a popular vote of member countries, which are in, which are supporters of, of Chavez, they're clients of, of Chavez. So he controlled uh, that. And once you have what is considered the legitimate uh, inter-American organization saying this is the way it is, uh, you had all of Europe doing pretty much the same thing, almost all of Europe. And you had this new Obama administration, which hasn't really paid any attention to Latin America. And its only guiding principle has seemed to be that he would be the anti-Bush, whatever, whatever it is to ingratiate himself with the region, to reach out, to work with, whatever. And so he went along condemning it. Now, what occurred in the following uh, period of months is that Obama spoke too clearly, and it was clear that there was not agreement within the administration, including in the highest levels of the State Department, uh, to the point that it, it became an absurdity uh, because elections were going to proceed in, in Honduras and you were going to have an elect, popularly elected government and the United States was painting itself into the position of having to not recognize a popularly elected government and rather recognize a person who was clearly a stooge of, of Chavez. So they had painted themselves in a difficult position and to Hillary Clinton's credit, I don't say that often, she, uh, she actually was able to reverse uh, reverse the the U.S. stance on, on that, and, and support successful negotiations. In Latin America, why are Latin so why are Latin American countries silent, or 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 why were they against the the so-called coup? Yeah, I, no. Yeah, no. I don't think so. Uh, you know, the the argument is that Latin American leaders decided not to decide to condemn this as a coup because they didn't want to legitimize what could be a coup in their own countries or so on. No, I don't think so. I think uh, r rather uh, it's the fear of Chavez. Chavez has the real potential to screw things up in your country to really give you a hard time, and not just diplomatically and at the OAS and in different places, but to actually um, cause you great difficulties. He has people, I mean, in, in so many countries in Latin America, he has um, what are called Casas del Alba, it, uh, basically Venezuelan, uh, supposedly charity institutions, but they're basically proselytizing throughout the country and, and stirring up trouble and organizing populist groups against uh, the governments that are not populist or in favor of the governments that are populist if it's in Argentina or in Ecuador and, and so on. So this is the way he spreads his money. And as I say, there is in every country this latent populist feeling uh, that he can really uh, stir up. And so I think most Latin American governments are sort of cautious about that. But I think that it's, it, the time has come where they, they shouldn't be that cautious. Yep. Um, my name is Carlos, and I work for the Center for Free Cuba. Um, in the last five months have been extremely tough in the island. You had the beating of Johanny Sanchez. Um, you had the imprisonment of six new political prisoners, one of them ending up dead, Orlando Zapata. 
And then you had the imprisonment of an American contractor, December 5th. The U.S. government is responding by cutting all funding to um, organizations here in the States that do programs in the island and by cutting all humanitarian missions in the island. Um, this was reported two days ago when Hillary Clinton was um, in Congress. What do you think the U.S. should do about Cuba, especially now that they have an American in prison? Yeah, I think it should end the embargo and cut off aid. Uh, why, why do I think that? Um, because, look, Latin American governments are typically um, incompetent. Oftentimes they do the wrong things. They just, they just uh, don't understand oftentimes liberty. Certainly that's the case in, in, in Cuba. But the American government is usually heavy-handed and dumb. And uh, I think, you know, I, I know there's well, good intentions in this type of aid to, uh, to, to those types of groups, but uh, I think it works against the goals that the U.S. says it's in favor of. Uh, and so there's a law in, in Cuba that says that anybody who receives money from USAID, which is who delivers that money, is violating the Cuba's laws. Okay. So this is exactly what you would expect would happen when somebody discovers that they were receiving, they were on a USAID contract. Um, I, I don't agree with that policy, but you shouldn't be surprised. And it puts these people at risk, even though it's trying to be trying to do this in a covert way. It also helps the government to 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 just say that every opposition person is a member of the, you know. Anyway, they're going to say that with or without USAID money. I'm I'm sure they already say that every day in in Venezuela. The government has said that about me, and you know, Cato doesn't accept government money, so that's certainly not true. But uh, I think that the U.S. needs to get away from this notion. That actually it can make it can make a big difference in Cuba. It really can't. Uh, it can make some positive difference by lifting the embargo because, you know, lifting the embargo isn't going to save Cuban communism from itself. It's a bad place to invest. It's a bad place to do business. It's not going to boom because um, the United States lifts the embargo, but it, that it will clarify that that's not the cause of Cuban people's misery. So that would be a big help. And ending the travel embargo would be even more helpful because then people will travel to, a lot of people, will, Americans will travel to, to Cuba. And, uh, I, I think that the most important part of that isn't just the exchange of ideas and the new context, but you, you're going to see a huge spread of the informal economy of the black market and people are going to be making money independent of the state. It's going to help to make people independent of the state. Some money inevitably will go to the government but I think it gives Cuban communism too much credit to say that they're going to know how to use that money wisely and so on. They never have. Uh, but I think you, we have to put more faith in ordinary Cubans. And, and it's for this reason that people like Yoani Sanchez and others are also opposed to the U.S. government funding uh, pro-liberty individuals in Cuba. I'm going to interject with a question from oh, online. Yeah. Um, there's a comment about drug growers having control over countries, particularly like Bolivia. Um, so how much does the drug trade influence the advancement of liberty in these countries where that's an issue? I don't think it's the drug trade uh, that's, that's the problem in Latin America. I think it's the drug war that's the, the problem. And this is a huge problem. 
you basically have a policy that's imposed by the, by the United States on the region. We in the United States have failed in the U.S. drug war, and because of that, we're imposing uh, a prohibitionist policy on the producing and transit countries, except that the problem is that the casualties are much greater there than here in the sense that the drug war itself causes an increase in violence, increase in corruption, and the weakening of all of uh, the institutions of civil society that presumably the United States wants to promote in the region. And so you have congresses, you have judges, you have militaries, you have people in the executive branch uh, completely corrupted by uh, or intimidated by drug traffickers as a result of prohibition. You have the media that is also intimidated and journalists assassinated. Uh, and you have a lot of instability. This, I think, is the biggest problem in Mexico today since the current president decided to impress the United States by declaring an all-out war and doing it against the drug traffickers there. Suddenly, you're seeing a tremendous amount of violence that you never saw before. Drug trafficking didn't suddenly become a problem in, in Mexico. It was a drug war uh, that has created 16,000 deaths in the last three years. And so I, I think that that's the problem. And as long as the United States doesn't actually and prohibition here, it's going to continue to be a problem in the region. But I think it would be much better for the U.S. and for the governments in Latin America to stop prosecuting the drug war there. It's not going to solve the problem because the, the problem is in the United States as long as it's, it's prohibited here. In practice, if that were the model to be followed, what that means is you would have to come to some sort of an accommodation with, with drug traffickers and growers, which is actually what's going on in Colombia today. You, you, Colombia is being painted as a successful uh, country in the fight against drugs and so on. Certainly in the last several years under President Uribe, it's a completely different country. It's a much, much better country. It's safe. Most of it is. It's growing. It's peaceful. This wasn't the case uh, a few, some years ago until he came in. But his policy was to go after the uh, guerrillas and to establish order. The amount of drugs uh, produced and exported from Colombia hasn't changed. I'll take a question here. about the reaction in Latin America to the Obama presidency. I mean, clearly, this is the Obama presidency has implemented the, the most extraordinary leftward lurch in American um, um, uh, domestic policy, I think, since I was born. And I would be interested to, to hear what is the reaction in, in, in Latin America. Does this, is this seen as a vindication of, of populist movements there? No. I, <clears throat> Latin Americans, um, Obama is popular around the world. He has, as a person, uh, a high level of popularity. And that's true in Latin America as well. Latin Americans are mostly concerned about the United States to the extent that U.S. policy affects Latin America. And U.S. policy toward Latin America so far has been sort of a confused, not very focused policy. So far, Latin Americans are sort of just starting to take note of that. They certainly began to take note during the Honduras uh, conflict when a good 
portion of Latin American population was on the side of of uh, Honduran democracy. And yet, as I said, Washington finally was able to uh, reverse its position. What uh, uh, where Obama is unpopular is with the left in Latin America. Uh, According to Chavez, according to President Kirchner in Argentina, I think just today she made a comment uh, about how uh, President Obama has not lived up to his expectations in the Southern Cone countries. You know, this is such typical stuff from an irresponsible uh, government leader in Latin America, always looking for answers uh, from outside and especially blaming the United States for something that isn't going right, according to, to them. So to the left in Latin America, Obama is just another capitalist country leader who uses misguided uh, rhetoric or uh, tr- tries to deceive people. Uh, but basically uh, is not somebody to be trusted. I think, as I say, that increasingly that leftist view is diverging from popular uh, perception in Latin America. We have time for one more question. Okay, we'll take it in the back there. Thanks. Um, I have a question about Mexico. Uh, you touched briefly on it. Um, the, the, there are various doomsday scenarios on what's going to happen in Mexico. Uh, some, you know, some claim that Mexico is about to you know, become a failed state. Um, and there are others who say that the government now is uh, slowly, softly trying to uh, enforce a military dictatorship and the use of the military in uh, persecuting uh, and going after the police uh, is highly problematic from a democratic point of view. Uh, I don't know if you could say something about where do you see Mexico uh, in the short term and what do you think about the development and the use of the military in combating the uh, drug cartels? Yeah. Well, you know, Mexico's a big disappointment because, of course, it should be the star of Latin America. It's got all these advantages, not the least of which is that it's right next to the United States and shares a huge border and has a free trade agreement. And yet the growth rate in in Mexico has been completely mediocre. Part of the reason is because of the way that reforms occurred in Mexico, which was a little bit different than in the rest of Latin America in the sense that to this day uh, the country still has uh, tremendous uh, monopolies, their private monopolies, not fully, but tremendous monopolies that act as real bottlenecks on the entire Mexican economy in telecommunications, in electricity, in oil, and uh, a number of other areas. Uh, This, there's a lot of problems in Mexico, but this creates a huge problem for growth in the region. So you have this low growth, and then you have a president who uh, is promoting this drug war. Uh, it's, not, it's not a failed state. It's not even close to a failed state, but it has this serious problem of violence, which it cannot, this is the war it cannot win because Calderon, the president, is actually trying to achieve the impossible, beat the drug lords. Well, the drug traffickers can always outbid the government there's always going to be incentives for others to take their place. I mean, we've seen this over and over again. My concern is um, is not that it's becoming a, a military 
regime. It's not even close to that. I, I think that that would be virtually impossible in, in Mexico anyway. The, the military is very incompetent there, and purposefully so. You notice that Mexico is the one country in Latin America in the, uh, that since the revolution in the early part of last century didn't have a military coup. I mean, most countries in Latin America had many, you know, and the military is always a danger. Mexico was not like that. And, in fact, you never saw the military in Mexico. When the, when the PRI came to power or when the revolution triumphed there, uh, it was an explicit deal to keep, the, to keep the military happy but incompetent, and that's the way they liked it, and then to have their own dictatorship of the PRI, which had a new head every six years. So that's the military that Calderón, the president, has called to fight the war on drugs in, in Mexico. And um, it's not doing a good job. It can't do a good job. Frankly, even if it were a great military, it couldn't do a good job, but it's not a... Uh, so this, this in Mexico is unthinkable. Mexicans wouldn't stand for it. And initially, uh, the the drug war and the military as an institution to fight the, dr the drug traffickers was a popular idea. But it's not going well. And that popularity is falling in, in Mexico. And now uh, Mexicans are be actually beginning to talk about the failed drug war and about the need for legalization. There's a new book out, there's a new book out in Mexico by the former foreign minister under Fox, Jorge Castañeda, uh, basically talking about the failed drug war and highlighting all the problems, particularly in the case of Mexico. So my view for the, for the, the outlook of Mexico, in the very short term, growth is going to be high next year or two. Last year it was like a negative seven or so. Uh, this year it'll probably be six percent, but this isn't. This is just a bounce back from the, the crisis. I think that it still hasn't overcome its big problems. So you're just going to have low, average low growth in Mexico for a long time, and uh, the president still has three years left in his term. He's not going to declare the drug war a failure, but I think he's going to have to be forced to start to backpedal. Uh, somehow, because he's losing support, and I think that even in the administration, they recognize that it's they can't win this, and that they made a mistake, and that they've painted themselves into a corner. So all of Mexico is suffering from that mistake, even though all of Mexico seems to know, or much of Mexico seems to know that this is a, a problem. Uh, the bottom line is that I still think Mexico is is going to maintain this model of democratic uh, capitalism to the extent that it's gotten there and that it's not going to regress. Uh, but I'm not holding my breath for any big breakthroughs for liberty. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, thank you, Ian. Um, we're going to be heading upstairs for a nice little reception. Uh, I want to send a quick shout-out about the next event. It's uh, scheduled for March 26th. It'll be the same time, 4 o'clock, here at Cato, broadcast online. Um, so thanks for coming, and uh, we'll see you upstairs.